APU. American Public University is proud to present The Everyday Scholar. My name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today we're talking to Dr. Jeffrey Leatherwood, Associate Faculty of History. And our conversation is going to be about dynamics at work. Welcome, Jeff. Glad to be here, Bjorn. Excellent. So let's just jump into the first question. And so uh, why study the New South and the Carolina Piedmont region? And why is Charlotte so important? Well, first of all, I'm from the area of Western North Carolina, a little further west than Charlotte. But uh, this is a region that is at play even to this present time, politically speaking. North Carolina, battleground state in the last few elections. And one of the really interesting things about Charlotte is that it was uh, held up as symbolic of the New South, which was a goal that was uh, expressed by Henry W. Grady in the post-Civil War years. He believed that the South of agriculture and the South of slavery was dead, and it would be replaced by a New South of economic opportunity and development. Of course, those economic opportunities presented new challenges to the working people of the Carolinas. And the Piedmont region is the area dominated by Charlotte. And it's interesting to note that Charlotte, even though it's a North Carolina city, actually uh, has a lot of economic impact on parts of South Carolina, the upstate. And you can see the threads of this back during the uh, previous century, 100 years ago, in the post-World War I era. And that's why I found this a very fascinating topic. In Charlotte, in recent times, in 2012, was where the uh, Obama campaign kicked off the re-election. And uh, in uh, 2020, before COVID-19 complicated matters, uh, the uh, Trump campaign also thought about uh, doing their uh, big shindig in, in Charlotte. So uh, being an economic capital, though seriously hurt by the 2007 recession, Charlotte's still a force to be reckoned with. And uh, that's the reason why I did my research on Charlotte because it was a very important theater for labor history 100 years ago, but it's a forgotten history because it's a bloody history. And Charlotte uh, today doesn't really like to revisit what happened in the past, but you can't rewrite history, not a single line of it. No, that's absolutely excellent. And myself, having lived probably 1,800 miles from Charlotte <laughs> my entire life, I know very little about Charlotte, the Carolinas, honestly, and the South in general. And I think that's one of the complications of history is we all essentially learn these mythologies about history. And sometimes we think these mythologies or just oral history that for some reason that has been passed to us are true. And we simplify history to sometimes caricatures, you know, such as the South. For people who don't live in the South, you might have these preconceived ideas of the South or, you know, maybe uh, people who live in the Carolinas, you have a pre preconceived idea of California because there's a certain mythology that goes to certain places and then just uh, stereotypes. And so how did you discover this research topic? You said you're from the area. So that obviously is a contributing part. But you brought up something really salient about the uh, mythologization of a certain region. And uh, there's this uh reigning theory that the South was not organized and was uh, wholly rejective of organized labor. And that's simply not true because there's a number of historians who've pointed out that uh, there were willing uh, minds and willing hands to embrace organized labor. 
in the Carolinas, uh, particularly in uh, the upstate South Carolina and the North Carolina Piedmont region. But I got interested in it because I was a master's student at Western Carolina University and I had a professor that I was very fond of, very close to, named Jerry Schwartz, who tragically passed away last year. And so I've been thinking about him a lot because uh, in many ways he inspired me to go on to become who I am today. And one of the assignments that we had in his industrial class was to look at some labor history or uh, industrial event that had a local connection. And when most people think of labor history in North Carolina, they think of the textile mills, they think of the mill towns. And these have a lasting influence on the region because the mill towns are around all the way until the 1960s and the 1970s. And think what you will of former Senator John Edwards, the presidential hopeful, but one of the things he boasted about is the fact that he'd come so far from a mill town family. But the uh, streetcar men, I found this a fascinating subject because the uh, 1919 Charlotte strike, unlike a lot of the textile mill strikes, was almost forgotten. Until I discovered it in uh, the early 2000s as a topic, only one other person had really attempted to do any uh, long-term research on it. And she did it for a, a senior thesis at the undergrad level and then didn't develop it any further. And I didn't even read this work until after I'd done my initial research. I'd done newspaper research. And you're bringing up oral history, and that's something else that I wanted to point out. Um, one of the really nice things about oral history is that you can take one oral history source and you can triangulate it with others. And I found some oral accounts that have been preserved by a historian named Alan Tullis, who's a published author who's done work on Southern industry. And he did a lot of good. He laid, like uh, other scholars, he laid the foundation for me to, to continue doing my work. And I try to give full credit to other scholars for inspiring me or offering insight. And there were several people who were observers during the strike and afterward. And you can take all these triangulated uh, sources and corroborate, okay, this person coincides with that person. This is something that maybe isn't as easy to support. And that's really how historians try to work, whether it's in oral or written sources. We try to triangulate, we try to corroborate. I found myself doing a lot of this with the Charlotte strike. And even though my thesis at the time was on a completely different subject, uh, World War II bomb squads, which we could talk about another time, the Charlotte strike story stayed with me and it ended up becoming my PhD dissertation. West Virginia University history faculty are really strong on Appalachian history and really strong on labor history because of the coal mines. And I had a, a really good labor historian direct my thesis. His name is Kenneth Phones Wolf. He just retired from the department. So this bridged my master's program all the way to my PhD and then beyond because I then enhanced it further and I published it uh, about three years ago. The reason why the story has stayed with me for so long is one, because of you know, my ancestral connection to the region. And as you're saying about stereotypes, you really want to try to give a, a three-dimensional portrait of people instead of a two-dimensional stereotype. And it's very easy, especially in this present time, to stereotype people. And I have to remind myself, the historian in me says, People are not monolithic. People are not two-dimensional. At the time of um, the recording of what we're doing right now, which is November 2020, the election just happened. And, and, and what you just said really resonates is people are not monolithical. People are complex. So 
after the election, people who voted for Biden, people who voted for Trump, there seems to be such a, a draw for people to just talk about large swaths of people. Oh, well, they did this because of this reason. They voted this way because of this reason. People are more complex than that, always more complex than that. And history, more than any other subject, really delves into the complexity of humans, their actions, their reactions, and uh, just the complicated uh, downstream events that happened. And so why are streetcar conductors and motormen so important in the era that you're talking about? And what was the working world of the streetcar men like? Well, it's changed, of course, and we can talk about the changes that came after the 1920s and 1930s further down the road. But uh, as you were saying, you can't really judge an entire people and sum them up with a few facile arguments. The reason why uh, the region I'm talking about was uh, amenable to labor was because of bread and butter issues. Even though labor union members have been often painted by their critics as socialists, and that, that was very common back then. The propaganda that the local newspapers used uh, was very anti-labor, and it used a lot of uh, anti-Bolshevik imagery, saying you know the Bolshevik Revolution happened uh, in 1917; and it can happen here in 1919. And of course, the people who backed the uh, streetcar unions in the Carolinas were anything but socialists. They were thinking about uh, ordinary working-class concerns like cost of living, which after World War One was really dreadful. But the streetcar men acted as conduits of information about the way that uh, working class people, local working class people were treated because they heard all the stories from the textile mill workers and the other workers that uh, traveled to and from. And they were sympathetic in large part. There was some mistrust by the streetcar men toward the, some of the textile workers because the textile workers tended to be a little more fiery, a little bit more unmanageable. But many of the streetcar men believed that the workers in the textile mills should be unionized too. Even though the American Federation of Labor focused more on trained workers. Now, streetcar men were trained workers or skilled laborers. And this is something that was borne out by uh, state and national uh, discussions at the, in, in uh, Congress. And they talked about why streetcar men were so important. They're skilled workers. They take people to and from work. They operate streetcars safely. The union promoted safe conduct and safe practices. And they were the primary means of transportation in the period in between horse-drawn and uh, gasoline-powered buses. You had sort of a transitional period. You had electric streetcars starting in the 1890s, and they were still in, in vogue all the way until the 1920s with the construction of streetcar suburbs that served uh, the local areas. People would go to school on streetcars, they go to work on streetcars, they go downtown, they go out to recreation parks. And it wasn't until after streetcars began to phase out in favor of buses and, of course, private transportation that the role of the streetcar motorman and conductor really started to uh, disintegrate because uh, there was no longer a need for them. Nowadays, streetcars are a major tourist attraction. It's, it's sort of what I like to call the ain't that quaint version of history that uh, tourists really enjoy. But in those days, it was much more of a prosaic, everyday phenomenon. And the streetcar men wore uniforms. Uh, they paid dues. They had baseball teams, which they would actually play with their uh, managers. 
And, you know, they had a culture of their own, but because they weren't as long lasting as the textile mills or as dramatic as the textile mills, the textile workers have had a, a number of documentaries and films made about them, whereas the streetcar men have kind of vanished over time. And again, picking up that vanish, the, the vanishing threads of that past world, that was the biggest challenge for me because I had to go through the newspapers, the oral histories and so forth. And I found that they were just like uh, bus drivers today. Bus drivers hear it all from their passengers. And you'd be surprised at uh, what they know. They, they get taken for granted sometimes. But transportation workers, even today, are, are very important. We take them for granted because, well, they're just there. But they have lives and they have aspirations. And many of them love what they do or they wouldn't do it. No, I think of, I mean, there are bus routes everywhere. And honestly, one of the, I guess you can say, environmental pushes these days is to use more mass transportation. Don't drive as much, <laughs> take a bus, take a train or whatever you have in your locality. The legacy of, like you said, horse-drawn carriages to streetcars to other things is still alive with us today. So why was there so much resistance to unions, especially in the New South? Now you mentioned communism, of course. There was the 1917 revolution in Russia, which is interesting because then there was a red scare in the US that lasted a pretty good long time. Can you go a little more into depth into kind of some of the resistance? It really coincided with the First World War. Now, labor had really enjoyed an upswing during the uh, immediate first two decades of the 20th century. One of the uh, important factors was the influence of Samuel Gompers and the American Federation of Labor because they had replaced the more radical unions like uh, the Knights of Labor and uh, the uh, industrial workers of the world, the Wobblies, they had become the premier labor organization, a big umbrella, a union of unions. But they avoided the really radical expressions of labor. They used strikes only as a last resort. And they also abided by the prejudices of the era. They uh, had very few women organized. They abided by Jim Crow in areas of the South. And they largely ignored unskilled trades like the textile mill workers. Uh, and of course, the de-skilling of labor was something that had been going on since the uh, Civil War. But with uh, the 1912 election, you had a very strong support for organized labor from the Democratic Party under Woodrow Wilson. In fact, a former United Mine worker became his uh, Secretary of Labor. Uh, that would be William B. Wilson. And during the war, the labor unions demonstrated their support for the government at war by resisting impulses to strike. Labor was uh, largely divided, much like the Democratic Party of today. You had the moderates, and then you had uh, a few people on the fringes who were more radical. And of course, it was the, the radical elements that the businesses argued against, and of course, guilt by association, because you've got these really radical outspoken people. Therefore, the whole labor organization is really like that. And again, we hear the same arguments today about why labor is so dangerous. But nonetheless, despite all these prejudices, during the 19-teens, you had expansions of the streetcar union, which back then was a big mouthful. It was the Amalgamated Association of Street and Electric uh, Railway Employees, or ACER as I call it. And they were able to organize in places like Asheville, North Carolina, or Columbia, South Carolina, where in fact the chapter president 
was also the uh, elected representative for District 77, which here in uh, Columbia, where I'm sitting right now, is actually represented by a very progressive African-American politician, a very young star in the Democratic Party by the name of uh, Cambrell Garvin. But uh, back 100 years ago, it was represented by the president of the local streetcar union. It was really fascinating to figure out there's, there's a strong support for these really progressive politicians, you know, progressive back then, you know, Mr. Gerald, uh, Representative Gerald was considered progressive 100 years ago. Of course, he probably would have been appalled or at least frightened by the idea that 100 years later, we have an African American who is now representative, but they both represent progressive politics in their own way. And so what we have is a ground of support, but there's also a ground of opposition. And because of the Bolshevik Revolution, which we talked about earlier, and the Red Scare, which you know, most people associate with McCarthy, but there was an earlier Red Scare with the Palmer Raids and so forth. It touched the, the Carolinas and Georgia and Tennessee. And I could talk about Georgia and Tennessee a little bit, but we're focused on this region, so we'll stay focused on that. But there were a number of clashes between the streetcar union and politicians in all these states, Georgia, Tennessee, North and South Carolina. But uh, Charlotte was important because it was the hole in the donut. If they could unionize Charlotte in 1919 uh, before Wilson left office, Wilson was a lame duck president. If they could unionize Charlotte, they would fill the hole in the donut because you've got Columbia, you've got Asheville, North Carolina, you've got a few other small unions and other mill towns. And that was the big one. And the reason why is because it's the headquarters for Duke Power, or in those days, Southern Power. And Duke, very anti-union, had been busted by the Supreme Court for antitrust violations of this tobacco empire. So what does Duke do? But he reinvents himself as a, a hydroelectric dam developer. And he also has part interest in the textile mills that uses power. And he also has interest in the utilities companies that use the electricity from the dam. So that's why there's a lot of resistance in Charlotte, because James Duke and his associates uh, did not want any unions, even, even one union, because that would mean, of course, that others would come. They're determined to nip it in the bud. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Leatherwood, and we'll be right back after a short break. At American Public University, we believe that higher education can unlock higher purpose. So we offer 200 modern programs for those who want to make a difference. And we believe education must adapt to students' needs. That's why we've made it accessible through online classes and flexible with monthly program starts. American Public University, within reach, without limits. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. And we're back with Dr. Jeffrey Leatherwood. And so the next question I have for you is, why was 1919 such an important year for labor history? Well, it was the year of the big strikes. It was the year after Johnny came marching home. And uh, one of the things I'm going to be doing very shortly is a course, a special topics course in the Roaring Twenties. And I start with the year 1919 because it really sets the stage not just for the immediate future, but also for the whole decade. And... It was a year in which prohibition went into effect, and it was also the year in which uh, backlash against labor reached a fever pitch. Uh, you'd had, during the war, the National War Labor Board, which was actually chaired by former President uh, William Howard Taft, and it was a, a fairly 
egalitarian way of dealing with labor issues. They would arbitrate instead of allowing strikes to go on to become violent. And oftentimes they would find in favor of the unions. But there was a sunset on that particular body. It should have probably been kept permanently, but it was just a, a matter of sunset legislatures, they say, and it expired. And therefore, there was no way to really arbitrate except through the uh, Department of Labor. And it was a non-binding process in a lot of cases. The Department of Labor could send people to observe. There was an observer in Charlotte, and he had some interesting things to say about the strike, but the power was very limited because they couldn't compel private industry like Duke to play ball with the uh, labor unions. But it was the year of the Centralia massacre. It was the year of the big steel strike. And uh, a lot of people were uh, in the balance because of the war between the uh, corporations. And they had unions of sorts too, a union of, of corporations, different uh, political groups and what we would call today PACs who were pretty much focused on getting rid of labor unions. That was their raison d'etre. And so the organized labor saw 1919 as sort of like a last-ditch effort. We've got a, you know, this is our, our Hail Mary. And so they began to push to organize Charlotte and other places. And in a lot of cases, like in Charlotte, they ended up suffering. The Charlotte streetcar men were among the lowest paid in the country. The national average was 26 cents to 28 cents for an hour, which we're talking about wages 100 years ago when we were still on the gold standard. But in uh, the Southern Transportation Companies, Duke's forerunner, uh, which uh, operated in Charlotte during the early 1900s, was paying as low as 12 cents hourly. And uh, Duke's, they only went up to like maybe 15, 16 cents per hour starting wages. So it wasn't really that big of a jump. And the streetcar men were tired of being treated as little better than textile workers or you know, unskilled workers. And they wanted better wages. They wanted better working conditions. Of course, the hazards of the job because of the, the cold weather, oftentimes they would turn off the heat on board these streetcars in order to save money. This is actually the reason for a 1903 strike that happened in Charlotte uh, before Duke bought up the transportation company. So this is the kind of uh, working condition they had to deal with. And so they were really receptive to the unions when they came in. Unfortunately for the streetcar union, they brought in a guy from Ohio who had good intentions. His name was uh, Jones, Albert Essex Jones. And he was a skilled Ohio union official. He had uh, been president of local chapters. He was also a very combative and fierce sort of guy. And he rubbed people the wrong way when he came to the Carolinas. Uh, he successfully organized a small chapter in Spartanburg, uh, which is in the uh, a very conservative uh, upper part of South Carolina, the upstate. And he saw an opportunity to march on Charlotte. And that's where he moved toward Charlotte, the, uh, the hole in the donut, as I said earlier. And Charlotte at this time is booming. It's growing fast. But... There's a lot of resistance in Charlotte. There was some support. Uh, the mayor of Charlotte, Frank McNinch, who's an interesting figure, he would later on become the first head of the Federal Communications Commission uh, under um, Franklin Roosevelt. But at the time, he was mayor of Charlotte, 
And he was pro-labor, but he was in a bind because he also had to deal with conservative businessmen like Duke in the area. So he, you know, he had to play very soft with uh, the organized labor. And uh, as a result, there were mixed messages in Charlotte for the union. Uh, on the one hand, they, they were able to organize not only the chapter in Charlotte, but also they were able to organize chapters in three other towns, uh, one in Winston-Salem, which is to the north of Charlotte, and then a couple to the south of Charlotte in uh, Anderson and in Greenville. Anderson went back over to Duke almost immediately, but Greenville would end up being the most hard-bitten. They would be the last to tear up their charter and come back into the fold. But when the Charlotte strike started in August, it paralyzed not just Charlotte's public transportation, but also transportation in three other, two other towns and complicated the situation in other towns. And this is why it really hurt Charlotte and why they considered it to be a, a threat. And then the local newspapers attacked Jones and attacked the union. And uh, the uh, company hired strike breakers. Uh, Zebulon Taylor was the vice president. He was uh, Duke's right-hand man. I like to refer to him as the hatchet man because he did all the firing and all the hiring for the Southern Public Utilities Company. And he was vociferously anti-union. You read his tirades in the newspapers and they're every bit as what you might expect from a, a Twitter message from a politician of the present day. And these people were attacked as outsiders, even though the uh, local union was uh, consisted of local people. And there were violent clashes between these armed strike breakers and local demonstrators. No one was actually killed by these strike breakers, but they were intimidated. And in one case, the uh, one or two cases, the strike breakers actually shot over the heads or at the feet of protesters. And it all came to a head on the night of August the 25th of 1919. And this is what's called the Battle of the Barn. Before I go into that, are there any other questions you'd like to ask me? Because that, that's a pretty big chunk right there. Yeah, no, um, you're definitely leading up to the violence of August 25th, 1919, correct? So can you explain what happened with that event? Well, it's sort of an anatomy of a disaster in a way. I, I often use disasters as a teaching tool, but in many ways, a massacre like this is a human disaster. It's the worst kind because it, it deals not with the failures of machinery or the elements of weather, but it deals with the fallibility of man. And you had some interesting individuals at work here. Uh, you had the police chief, Walter Orr, who was a very small man. He didn't like the textile workers, and he didn't like the unions, and he was called out to protect the car barn where the strike breakers were being housed when they were not on shift. And there were some attacks on the streetcars or people throwing bricks through the windows, the usual kinds of mayhem, but nothing really serious. What happened that, that really elevated the situation is that you had protesters, some of whom may, who may have been drunk violating prohibition, they had baseball bats, they may have been playing sandlot baseball games and drinking beer, and they all flocked to where a small group of uh, protesters were hovering outside of the car barn in downtown Charlotte. And you had Police Chief Orr and his uh, men, and you had the strike breakers who were armed, but who were not necessarily on picket. There's a question about whether the strike breakers took part in the shooting. Most of the shooting seems to have been the police, however. And... To make a long story short, there was a teenager who attacked one of Chief Orr's officers. 
whether he was drunk and causing mayhem or if there was something more political involved, we don't know. I've not been able to ascertain, but uh, the police officer claimed the boy was trying to grab his gun. But whatever happened, the boy was slugged and he was uh, injured, probably with a concussion, and he was taken to hospital. But he was so badly hit that there were rumors that the boy had been killed. The kid's name was Clem Wilson. Well, Clem had a big brother named John Wilson, and by all accounts, he was huge. He was supposed to have been a big textile worker, a big bruiser. He came wanting to know what happened to his brother. And he went up to the police chief, who was much smaller than he was. And even though Wilson himself didn't actually have a weapon on him, he, in fact, he rode to the scene in a horse-drawn buggy, which tells you, you know, kind of how rural the guy was. And he didn't have a gun with him or anything like that, but the police chief felt threatened, so he drew his revolver. And he backed up toward the line in front of the car barn, and he panicked and fired in the air with his police revolver. Later on, he claimed that he fired at and above the crowd because he thought he saw a gun. But in the murder trial that uh, followed, he finally broke down and admitted, yeah, I fired in the air, I got scared, and I fired in the air. But nothing ever happened to him. Uh, He was never punished for this action, which started an avalanche of violence. You had lead flying from one direction, from the car barn out into the, uh, the crowd. Five men were killed and 12 were wounded, some of them very seriously. And when the uh, smoke had cleared, uh, there were bodies lying all over the area in front of the car barn. Uh, one unfortunate fellow who was a, uh, a railway union member, which indicates that there was cross-union support for the streetcar men, he had dragged himself all the way to die in front of a laundry building. And one person that I was able to, to uh, figure out who was 17 was not a member of a union. He worked as a store clerk, and he may have stuck his head out the window. It might have been collateral damage, as they like to say. Friendly fire, whatever. But I was able to trace his gravestone. He was only 17, and he was killed by a flying bullet and killed instantly. So this is the long, the short-term tragedy. And the unions took all the blame for the violence. The uh, Mecklenburg County Courts covered Chief Orr's backside. They blamed Frank McNinch because Frank McNinch had uh, earlier hammered out a deal that gave the union a one-year trial period, which, of course, Duke rejected. And uh, McNinch had to go through a recall election. He he barely passed. He won the recall election, but uh, he left office not long after that because he had lost all taste for politics. And the long-term effect was that the local areas around Charlotte were saying, this is what the unions are like. Let's divest ourselves of any connections with the unions. The unions are at fault. And so it not only slowed any union progress, but it also undercut previous union successes. By 1920-22, there had been a couple of strikes in the Columbia area, and the Columbia Streetcar Union collapsed because they were locked out of their jobs, and they had to go find other means of of, uh, supporting themselves. And so by the by the end of the 1920s, the only streetcar union chapter that was still around in the mountains was Asheville, which uh, is interesting because today you have the American Transportation Union. And back in 1920, they were known as ACER Chapter 128, and now they're ATU Chapter 128. So they've got the same designation as 100 years ago. It's fascinating because of the tragedy. I mean, for all intents and purposes as with 
most violence, as you were talking about, kind of the fallibility of being human, none of this had to happen. Yeah, and as with, I think, any kind of, say, protests that turn into riots, if level heads would meet at the table, they could easily talk it out. But human nature for what it is, human inclination to violence for what it is, these happen, human fear. And then just like you said with the store clerk who was a collateral damage, you know, the poor guy got killed. And, you know, how many times in various riots throughout history has that happened where a poor bystander is snuffed out of existence for no fault of their own because other people can't control themselves, which of course is the real sad part of any kind of riots. And so what has changed for transportation workers since this fateful year in 1919? Well, obviously the uh, streetcars gradually were phased out. In Charlotte, they were phased out by 1935. Uh, they were going out in 1929, but they, they were finally completely phased out and replaced by uh, an autobus system. And the car barn itself, the monument to the men who died, was turned into uh, an up-to-date modern garage system. Later on, it was used by Duke Power as a storage building. And when I started researching it, they were trying to save it as a historic monument. They're going to use it as a museum to talk about transportation. But the bond failed in 2003, and in 2007, it was torn down. And nothing has really been remarked upon except for a few newspaper articles. They missed an opportunity last year to commemorate the century of the strike and the tragedy, and there was really nothing done about it. I talked to a few historians about getting something started, but there was just no interest in the city. The Amalgamated Transportation Union still helps the transportation workers of the country, and they're still a vital part of the uh, American Federation of Labor, which is now part of the AFL-CIO network. But that's one of the big changes. But uh, they, they have historians, too. And they were fascinated by the history I just related to you because they didn't know anything about it. Again, it's, it's, it's sad to think of these important events that happen for people. And they might be categorized as small events because they only impact a few dozen, a few hundred, you know, and only a few people died, which of course is a horrible thing to say. That's one of the rhetoric, I, one of the unfortunate uh, rhetorical devices of history is when you say stuff like, well, only five people died or five people died. That's five people who died though. Right, exactly. And I always tell people, you know, that's the same number of people who were killed in the Boston Massacre. And we make a big deal about the Boston Massacre, even though it was anything but. And uh, with uh, regards to the uh, the people that died there, it only made like one uh, sidebar in the New York Times. I mean, it really was by comparison with bigger events, very small, but it had a, a powerful impact on the people who were immediately affected by it. Exactly. Uh, it makes me think of the John Adams uh, series of HBO, gosh, 20 years ago now, in which they recreated the Boston Massacre. And, you know, when you watch that, of course, the visual medium of television helps make things come alive. And you look at it and you're like, okay, and you look at it and you watch that and you're like, this is a really small event. Again, people died, a tragedy. But yes, I mean, the Charlotte Riot versus the Boston Massacre, similar in scope, which is so bizarre. But Charlotte, forgotten, completely forgotten, which is sad. The circumstances under the Boston Massacre, of course, were a bit different because you know, we're talking about a much smaller number of people. You have the East Coast versus the entire nation. And of course, something like that is going to be commemorated, especially 
because it was valuable propaganda for the Sons of Liberty. Whereas with the 1919 period, I mean, take your pick. There's a lot of strikes and a lot of violence that has happened. And so it's overshadowed. Whereas the Boston Massacre was really the partly instigated by the Bostonian workers. I mean, they, that was one reason why John Adams was able to defend the British troops and Lieutenant Preston so effectively is because facts are stubborn things. The fact is the soldiers didn't start the violence, whereas you could definitely say that the violence was escalated by the company in Charlotte and abetted by the police officers. Yeah, and it really makes you be very skeptical of the intentions of corporations, such as in this case, where, um, you know, when you think of the Ludlow massacre, where it was just about breaking the union or breaking the organized labor uh, to save money, which is just, they're fighting for just a better life. And yet companies can't pay a little more. Same thing with Meituan, which happened around that same time period. Yeah. And it comes down to greed, uh, as, as you're saying. I'm going to go out on a very, very far limb here, and I'll compare it to the current discussions about Amazon. You know, Amazon, I think it's the largest company in the world as of 2020. Jeff Bezos, the richest person in the world. And they're hesitant to pay their, their workers a little more, the workers in the warehouses. These are the people that give everyone the products. And you can make their lives a little better, but you want to chip into your multi, 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 multi billion dollar valuation by just paying people a little more. It's completely bizarre. And from, I guess, from my perspective and from a um, huh, an ethics perspective, ethics are gray, but you give people a little more, they are a little happier. Of course, there is a point to where you give them more than it's a zero sum game. <laughs> right, exactly. The The advent of corporate welfare, and say what you will about Henry Ford, I, I loathe the man and his attitude about history and his anti-Semitism, but he did believe in giving competitive wages. And that's, uh, you know, one of my, one of the topics that I, that I do like to talk about is the rhetoric of hard work. And I think this is a great example of it because these, these men, I'm assuming they're all men who did the, the streetcars. They only the had women in World War I, and they were mostly in big cities like New York and Baltimore. Yeah. And, you know, this time is so interesting because then women were given the right, were given the right to vote in 1920, just, I guess, ratified in 1919, but given the right, you know, so it just happened. And so these men are just literally trying to, to make it a little better. And so, you know, to have the American dream, I'm not sure if the American dream existed as an idea in 1919. But you can only work so hard until something has to change. And so, and it's just so interesting how uh, the rhetoric of hard work is like, well, you need to work as hard as you can. You still won't make that much money, but that's just your place in life. You know, and then when people actually try to organize and try to make it better, it's then blocked constantly by corporations, which then at the time, I'm sure would have been what, what I'm saying right now would have been like, well, this is communist propaganda and you're going to be. <laughs> well, you still have that rhetoric in a lot of things that we hear today. And unfortunately, there are some people on the outer fringes who kind of tear out the carpet occasionally because they don't know how to temper their, their zeal with maybe a little more restraint, maybe a little more decorum. And of course, they say things that are embarrassing and that can be it can be used against the overall effort to ameliorate the the world of working people. And of course, now we have working men, working women. We did away with child labor, though that could come back if we're not careful. 
and yeah, the the concept of hard work, I know it's sort of almost like a boilerplate expression of, you know, work hard, but it is true that in order to be uh, successful, you have to be good at what you do. You have to be competent. And there was some talk about organizing when I was a, a PhD student, and they talked about organizing adjunct professors or adjunct instructors because they were uh, considered to be exploited by the universities because the universities weren't hiring more tenure track professors. And of course, I never got into that particular business too much. And I know that some people were afraid to get involved with that movement because they were afraid that it might hurt them when they got their degrees and they tried to you know, apply for tenure track jobs. Yeah. And I mean, what you said right there is just it's existing structures surviving because they always have and people fearful of changing it because it could jeopardize their future. And it totally makes sense. And just like with universities, we're going to side tangent, universities keeping underpaid resources, labor, because they can. Well, you're getting a degree. We're not paying you anything. It's just part of the deal. And, you know, and that's one thing in, in higher education that, you know, doesn't look like it's, it will change, but it should. They run like businesses instead of institutions. And you know, they always look at the bottom line. And, uh, you know, some, to a certain extent, you have to have efficiency and you have to have accountability. And these are these are good traits to have uh, in universities. You know, you don't want to waste money or duplicate effort. And I can see how the business model might, might help an institution like that. On the other hand, people are people and you, you have to see them as as resources, which, you know, we talk about resources, human resources, but. Is it always in practice? And a lot of companies, uh, they don't always see human beings as human beings. Uh, Walmart's a good example. In the uh, town where I went to college for my undergrad and master's, uh, they tried to organize that Walmart and they fired everybody. Yeah, and that's large corporations such as Walmart, Amazon, just to pick on those two because they're so big. Yeah, the individual person is completely re replaceable. The rhetoric of hard work is work hard. You'll benefit someday. Well. It's more complicated than that. Everybody works hard. And then even, you know, the executives, and it's not to say that there can't be an executive class, there can't be a managerial class, there has to be. But just the sheer amount of money that I'll say the leadership has diluted themselves. Oh, well, we have to pay quality talent to retain them. No, that's just because you control the purse and you're like, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna pay you, Jeff, a million dollars if you stay here. And you're like, okay. Who's going to disagree because you're in charge? <laughs> um, you know, while an average worker at Walmart has, say, a few kids and has to have two jobs. Yeah, a lot of times uh, people do work two jobs or more to keep things on the table. And of course, unions, the goal of unions is to try to ameliorate that situation, to amend it to where they don't have to do that. Uh, they can focus on their one job and it should be enough to support them. But we could go into the, uh, the double income uh, phenomenon in the 1960s and 1970s. They figured they could charge more to, to double income families because they'd be willing to pay for the, for the goods and services. But that's another, another uh, story. No, it is. And it's even another side conversation is you know, how the politics at large expect people to hustle constantly. Well, you have your job and then you have your side income stream. Well, most people have to work and have a family. And then you want them to have something else in addition. Everybody's hustling so much that I understand why there is more interest in 
say, unionization or government help um, as of 2020. In the same respect, I understand why people still believe in the American dream because, of course, it's true. It's complicated. Everything's complicated. It is that. I mean, I can say that I'm, you know, I've lived the American dream because my grandfather was a bootlegger from Western North Carolina and my dad was a high school dropout. He had to drop out to work in a furniture factory because his mother was terminally ill. And if it weren't for his 20 years in the army and my own service, you know, many moons ago, I wouldn't be here. And I say that there is an American dream, but again, it is complicated. Uh, You have to find your way. Exactly. And it's tough because, again, going back to the rhetoric of hard work, the American dream is really about your average person being safe and having a job. And if that makes sense, it's not about becoming a millionaire. And I think because of media and American media portrayals of wealth and extravagance, that's kind of what people think of. And in reality, you know, a more temperate approach to the American dream is reality. It is. And the uh, median income in America is something that I can tell you from having visited other countries, the luxuries that we enjoy here and the, the just a, a median income would be really considered extravagant in a country like Northern Italy, where I lived as a child. I had toys that the Italian kids could only dream of owning. And that was just from perspective of a child. And as a young adult, when I was in Turkey, uh, the American dollar could go a long way. And it's made me appreciate things a little bit more because I've actually seen how other people live in other places. Yeah, you know, I've been to Mexico once or twice just over the border, and I've seen the poverty in places like Juarez. I grew up in El Paso, Texas. Yeah, and I took some credits at UTEP, University of Texas, El Paso. When you're coming out of the library, right in front of you, across the river, the, the, the Rio Grande, is Juarez. And it's literally... It's not a shanty town per se, but it's very shabbily constructed buildings. And you're like, that is reality. And it's it's sad that the rhetoric of hard work is what I would describe as mainly used by politicians to say, you need to work harder. It's your fault. You're in this position. When reality is that we all work hard. And if somebody could have that message, we're all working hard and we all just need to have a good life. And for the most part, the average person, they do that. They understand that. And much like what we were talking about here with the Charlotte strike, uh, those people in leadership positions that then corrupt what is going on and put into place bad things. Uh, a lyric from uh, Neil Peart, uh, the lyricist and drummer for Rush, who died earlier this year, comes to mind. Nobody's hero. And in one, one of the verses, he said, it's the pride of purpose in the unrewarding job. It is the voice of reason against the howling mob. And I've always liked that particular line. Uh, of course, it's sort of an aspirational role model that y- you want to be like that. And, you know, as a historian, I've had students who've told me, you know, they're really angry about situations today. And I tell them, stay at home. Don't go out there into the streets. Don't go pounding the pavement. I completely agree. I don't recommend anybody going to protests. You can protest, but protests can turn into riots. And when riots occur, all bets are off. Anything can happen. You could die. And who gets the blame, uh, just like with the Charlotte strike? Uh, if anything that has taught me, even this is even before the obvious examples that they used about, oh, the Nazis fighting in the street uh, during the rise of Hitler. Uh, no, but even before that, if you go out there and, uh, and you protest and you fight with the police and you fight with strike breakers, they're going to make you into the bad guy, even if you had the gravity of, of justice on your side. 
No, it's true. And from a political perspective, I loathe the media because the only thing that seems to be important are national elections, when the most important thing are local elections. Local elections is what keeps people together. It's what makes the world go by. Example, those people in Washington, D.C., who get all the attention. It's not, not that it's a clown show, but what really happens is what goes locally. And locally, almost every time people work hard and they work for the for the good of the local in environment and local people. So, but before we keep on going on, um, any final words, Jeffrey? I think that this uh, has been a very enjoyable and uh, thought-provoking conversation, hopefully from me to you as well as from you to me. You've brought out a lot of really good points that I was able to tie into my research. I think that this time period has a lot to offer us, but looking back on it from a a centennial viewpoint, human beings tend to be number obsessed. And so a hundred years ago, but regardless of when something takes place, it still offers a valuable lesson for the present day. Because one thing I've learned, our technology evolves, our governments sometimes change, but human motivations are always the same. And to understand history, you have to understand human nature. I completely agree. And uh, thank you for an absolutely wonderful uh, podcast. And today we are talking to Dr. Jeffrey Leatherwood, Associate Faculty of History, and our conversation was about dynamics at work. For more information about our university, visit us at studyatapu.com. APU, American Public University.